I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the region's public policy challenges. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is based at Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. This week's episode is quite different, but also quite special, I think. For those following on from last week, you might have been expecting a podcast from my student, Sean, on the topic of the escalating trade conflict between the US and China. Well, don't worry, that podcast is coming. It'll be out for you sometime next week. Today, however, we're handing over the reins to another guest host for the podcast. And this time it's Professor Helen Sullivan, who is the director here at Crawford School of Public Policy, and also, I should add, my boss. Helen is leading a discussion on a topic which all policymakers confront, and that's the issue of complex systems. How can we better understand how the systems that underpin public policy interact and work together? And how can we craft policy that works across the whole of that system rather than just one bit of it? And what should we do about the inevitable unintended consequences of policymaking? Helen's guests for the podcast are three experts who are at the forefront of thinking about policymaking in terms of complex systems. She'll be talking with Professor Claudia Pahl-Vostel, who is the Director for the Institute for Environmental Systems Research at the University of Osnabrück in Germany. Claudia's research looks at multi-level governance, water policy and social ecological systems. You'll also hear from Assistant Professor Datu Buyong Agustinata from the Julian Wrigley Global Institute of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Datu teaches courses on the topic of system of systems, decision analysis, green engineering, and industrial ecology. Finally on the podcast today is Professor Deborah Blackman from the University of New South Wales. Deborah is a member of the Public Service Research Group and her focus is on using systems explanations to understand why things don't work when the theory implies that they should. I should add that Deborah is the lead organiser of an event which has been running all week at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, which brought together public servants and those involved in policy implementation to look at this very topic. It's also thanks to the University of New South Wales that today's podcast has been made possible. Due to the special nature of today's podcast, unfortunately, it won't be possible to incorporate your questions in this week's discussion, but we would still love to hear your thoughts and ideas on anything that we've talked about today. We'd also love to hear if you've got any topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Next week, incidentally, we'll be taking a look at Australia's first steps into the final frontier with the launch of its new space agency. We've got a stellar lineup to talk about the agency and whether the $26 million committed in this week's budget is enough to get it off the ground. 
you've got questions for our experts on that topic, you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. Alternatively, you can always share your thoughts and comments with us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. I'll be back with more after this, but for now, let me hand over to Helen for today's discussion. So I'm delighted today to be joined by um, a number of uh, experts in the field of complex systems. Um, Why do we care about complex systems? Well, if you're a policymaker, you'll know that we talk very much about policy problems and how complex they are. Um, And very often, the policy solutions we come up with uh, have unintended consequences. And some of those unintended consequences um, arise from the fact that we haven't really understood what it is that we're examining. Um, And that's where the science, if you like, if you want to call it that, um, of systems comes in. And today I'm joined by uh, a number of people who can talk very well about um, all aspects of of systems analysis and how they can be used to benefit policy. Um, So, uh, I should start by introducing Professor Deborah Blackman, who is the, the initiator of this conversation. Good morning, Deborah. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Our two experts who will be leading this conversation are Professor Claudia Powell-Wassell. Good morning, Claudia. Good morning. It's great to be here in Australia. And Assistant Professor Dautu Buyung Agustinata. Good morning. Who yes. I have to say is described on my piece of paper as a rising star. Well, I'm not sure about that. (laughs) Glad to be here. Thank you. Okay. So um, to get started, um, Deborah, can you say a little bit about uh, why you think we should be having this conversation now and what's important about it? So there were a few of us at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, who are interested in implementation in particular to do with there's lots of really great policies developed, but not all of them, as you say, do the things that we'd like them to do. And we are particularly interested in implementation and figured that a lot of it is about not understanding the system. And so we were very fortunate to get to support to invite some incredibly clever people to come and talk about it, which we've been doing for the last few days, and think about what is it about researching them, understanding them, thinking about them that helps us to reconfigure maybe some of the ways we do research, some of the ways we um, engage with practice, and just spend some time reflecting on the fact that if we don't understand the system, and I don't necessarily mean that we understand it in great detail, you know, this will always do that, because as we've been discussing, the reality is as soon as we start to look at it, we change it. But at least we can start to look at what are the relations, how are things working, what are the bits we just hadn't been expecting. And that was how it all started. We have with us today uh, two academic experts, um, but policymakers are really important in this conversation, aren't they? How how do you think we we go in involving them in the, in these conversations? I think that'll be interesting to talk to um, Claudia about, particularly because I know she does a lot of work with the policymakers. But what we did was, which is quite unusual, was when we set up our workshop, we actually invited um, policymakers from. Um, various different parts of the federal and state governments to start to talk to them and to say to them, what do you need to know? And we had a long conversation yesterday afternoon about, well, we're going to have a lovely time and we've had a really nice time and we'd all like to, you know, do more research and do more papers. What would you actually like? And of course, it's very different. And that's what we're now thinking about. How do we do those things? But also involving them in the research. We talk a lot about partnering with research, but we don't 
always inaugurated ourselves in a way that's realistic. And I think that's something that was clear to me in the conversations we need to work much harder at. Mm, great. Yeah. And that's certainly a, a consistent theme that uh, Crawford um, is uh, working at all the time. How do we effectively engage policymakers and practitioners at all levels um, and at all parts of the um, of the process? So um, given that uh, we've already thrown to you, Claudia, about your work with policymakers, can you Tell us a little bit about your interest in, in, in systems and systems governance, particularly in the context of, of water, um, and why you think it is we need to be thinking differently about water and how we govern our management of water. Yes, as you already said, uh, my main field is water governance and management, and increasingly as well the whole work on the water energy food nexus. So the nexus already, it means that we have to look at these uh, three resources more in interdependence. And this already communicates, I think, one of the major issues from a systemic perspective that you can't manage or govern water without considering other sectoral policies. And often these policies are really incoherent. Responsibilities in administration are very fragmented. There is no instruments or not effective instruments to coordinate policies, which is a real problem because you have these side effects. And they're in particular and realizable at the implementation level. And uh, we always, always often collaborate with water boards who are really suffering from the consequences that you use too much water for agriculture or that you develop regions without considering that water is a limitation or also that you have, for example, in the area in Germany where, where my university is located, too much nitrate pollution of groundwater and the water supply suffer. So that's one thing really to we have to have a more systemic approaches where we look at these various resources more from an integrated way and the current discussion is more at which level can you integrate really at the policy level or can or should you do you need better instruments to really integrate give more freedom at the implementation level to really find instruments that allow us during implementation process to look at the integration. But also I think that what um, is also of importance. This shift towards more integration also is a shift towards a different way of both, I think, how policy is organized and also how management has as a guiding principle because water has for a long time been dominated by the idea of reducing problems to something you can control by technical means. Mm -hmm. And uh, this command and control approach has increasingly shifted towards a more integrated, adaptive approach, a systemic approach, for example, I just look at the two kinds of how we deal with extremes, droughts or floods. The flood we have always increased to build dams and move wherever there had been too much water. People tend that there has been a floodplain. Droughts, you just want to get people everywhere where there has been no water and try to think you can deliver water for any kind of purposes that you need. And we see increasingly that there's limitations with that you really then, when there is no water available in drought areas or when there is uh, too much excess water, huge floods, then you have a disaster. And that's a very interesting issue that we see in particular in the area of flood management that there is a real shift to moving towards from controlling water to living with water. And interestingly, just the Netherlands, you could say, wouldn't exist without controlling water, are the leader globally who currently develop entirely different ways of dealing with water, like having floating settlements, giving more room for the river, because they have realized that it's really 
they they would not with this kind of risk management strategy, which is too short-sighted and the idea of controlling risk, they can't deal with the problems of the future. And it would also not be responsible to the population to communicate to them that they would be safe. So that is very interesting. And I think also the Netherlands are pretty much business-oriented. They make also business case out of it. And I thought, hmm. We don't have a leader yet in the drought area. Couldn't Australia develop different kinds of policies and governance more in the drought realm? But I think where we need as well a shift in these kinds of uh, policies. Mm -hmm. And to make a short a final comment, in terms of our own work, we really develop at the moment what we call a diagnostic approach, where we collaborate at different levels with policymakers, implementers as well, with people at the at the national level, also related to the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals, where we look at more context-sensitive analysis. Okay, what are the current governance structures, instruments in place? We have certain focus on coordination cooperation. And uh, to which extent do they depend on history and context? And how can we collab uh, implement uh, also together with we do much action research with stakeholders, different ways of solutions, and how can we also transfer experiences? And according to my experience as well with different, um, uh, uh, different projects, sharing experiences across countries has always been of big interest for both for industrialized and developing countries. So, so far about our experience. That's great. And I just, this idea of, of moving from um, governing to living with um, is fascinating. And I, I wonder how policymakers respond to that. I mean, you've identified the Netherlands as a, as a leader, but, but policymakers, in my experience, are not terribly good at not being able to solve a problem. And the idea of living with seems to suggest that this is something we, we have to do very differently. What's your experience of getting policymakers to think that differently about how they govern water? I think one is, is that they start, I think it's quite easy to get this as the discourse level because it appeals as well, it resonates with the population. Mm -hmm. For example, after each new flood in Germany, we have again, ah, we have to change our policies, we have to make rivers again to more living landscapes. Even now in China, you have a new policy, harmonious society, the new way of dealing with water, but we also see the contradiction between this stated, at least from my my perception of China, they seem to be able or they, they they seem to have less problems in terms of these huge controversies work, this um, south-north diversion from the <laughs> Yangtze to the Yellow River and their idea to have a new harmony uh, with, with people. So I think one thing is it seems to be quite easy to be adopted at the discourse level because mm -hmm. it's, I think, something that, that is also something that the public probably would agree it's much more difficult to then move to the next step because it's a new systemic paradigm to really shift to a very different way. And even people who adopt it, for example, um, of course, we are much further also in progress with the flood management paradigm. It might mean that in certain areas you have, again, to give more space to the river, mm. which means, but normally there, at least in Europe, perhaps at least you have, you have here more space, but <laughs> less water. In Europe, space is very limited. So then some people have to give up certain activities. Also, it may, for example, mean to shift um, accountability because citizens were used, all right, we move there and we don't care about floods. And suddenly there is a more risk-based policy where uh, we have a new European policy that say, all right, you should develop first a risk map and then decide about development. And people say, hey, but that is the most interesting uh, area where we won't have housing. So then I think in the implementation level, that's where really also 
the difficulties arise to put such a more integrated perspective into practice. And there I think we can also collaborate very well at different levels to really see, okay, how you can, and that, that's something that you have to manage uh, in, in uh, collaboration with people. Mm. And mm. That's, uh, the, at least I think uh, for, the flood, for the flood management paradigm that at least is already much more adopted, I think, I think the consequences that you might have in terms of droughts are even probably more severe because you, you, you may have to decide that, for example, also in a country like Australia, you may not be able to sustain farming in certain areas. But you shouldn't then just leave these communities on their own but think, okay, what alternative ways of uh, of uh, of uh, developing your livelihoods and well, um, I guess uh, uh, this is something uh, perhaps um, we should have identified earlier, but it, it'll give us a good segue into the, the next part of the conversation. When you're talking about um, systems in terms of of water, whether it's for floods or droughts, how easy is it to define a system? It's always a challenge to define a system because a system is nothing real. It's, it depends on the question that you ask. And uh, uh, if you see, really, things are very much interconnected. But uh, we, what we normally do, but let's assume you can look at the system perspective from how it's is it connected according to the dependencies across, for example, the resource connections. What we try at the moment to develop more system boundaries and systemic perspective, we use the ecosystem services approach. We say, right, there are different services that people get or want to have from the ecosystem, how are they dependent? And so try to see, map it from the dependencies more from the perspective of the physical system to see a bit more, okay, how are things related? But you also, we have these days often teleconnections, which you can't entirely ignore, but still I think you have to probably, tr if you really try to look at the whole fabric, things become pretty connected because each, nearly each region is connected to something else on the globe. But I think still having this or being able to capture this complexity, but still developing tools that allow you, right, but within this rather large fabric, what can we do and how can we judge more local solutions and how we can scale, uh, scale them up that have a potential to really also have a more profound effect on the way how we deal with water, for example, as a whole. That's a bit more an attempt to capture complexity, but still make it manageable. Yes, absolutely, and I think you've uh, you've given some great illustrations of that. If I can um, move to you now, Datu, um, one of the things that when we think about systems, and, and Claudia's already given a great illustration of this, is that um, the system is not a finite thing. It, it's dynamic, it's static, it's something that changes over time and you, you talked about the thinking about the future. Um, can you talk a little bit about your approach to understanding systems? Because you've taken it one step further. You know, and you, What you talk about is systems of systems. Right. So I think, uh, yeah, let me start maybe de defining what is a system of system, right? Because we are quite familiar with you know, the concept of system. So, so simply, uh, a system of system is a spatial class. So, and the reason it becomes spatial because of certain characteristics. So, so I think the main uh, features of system of system is uh, the fact that it is a combination of autonomous systems, meaning that each system is autonomous in the sense that they can, you know, they have their own uh, uh, you know, they manage, they are managed separately, they are independent operationally, and and then they have to work together or, you know, be part of a big, larger system because they need to address 
an issue that each of them cannot address individually. So, so my research has been, yeah, studying this this uh, system a system, and another way of looking at it is, as Claudia mentioned, it is no longer you know you cannot now use this command and control approach because, again, individually they are they are uh, independent they are depe- independent system right, um, but in you know. When I applied this type of system thinking, system of system, I think it allows you uh, to, uh, you know, define the problems now in a more uh, clear way in the sense that, you know, you have to look at each individual actor and then think what are the factors that for each of them that are relevant Right, because they are the one who own the system and oversees the system. They can do something about their own system, but if they want to work together with other system, well, interdependencies need to be defined. So, so by having that um, insight, I think it allows you to uh, sort of thinking, uh, you know, using this framework to to address much. Um, complex problems. So I think many people are recognizing this fact that now we have, for example, um, you know, Claudia mentioned food energy water nexus, and then now there is a movement to include health into that picture, right? So it's becoming multi-dimensional, uh, multi-actor uh, issues. And I, I'm also, uh, I think, I'm also interested in seeing how this can be used to inform you know, we have now United. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Nations with, you know, its initiative on sustainable development goals. And this is even much, you know, uh, more complex systems that we have to deal with. So for, for somebody who's trying to get their head around all of mm-hmm. this, um, can you give us an example of what a system of systems approach sure. might look like? Just, you know, using a simple, complex example. Right. So uh, I think uh, the food, energy, water nexus uh, is a good example. So uh, I think what I'm uh, proposing is that you start looking at actor. So in this case, actor could, you know, could be an individual or a household, uh, a water, bo- uh, you know, a board, uh, companies, right, and governments, uh, agencies. So if if you ask, then what are you know? If you think of from from an actor perspective, you you start to think, hey, what are their priorities? What are their concerns? What are in there? What are the instruments that it can you know that become a lever? But there are also uncertainties, right? So they they're faced with things that they cannot control. So for the food, energy, water nexus, you have um, utility companies who control the provision of energy. You have farmers who produce the you know uh, food, and then you have uh, 
you know, water uh, treatment plants, maybe part of cities. So they have to to uh, coordinate this because they need to achieve higher goals. And then I think in this case is to reduce the uh, environmental footprint of food energy water consumption. Mm-hmm. And and then the emphasis is this goal is not actually the reason for water utilities to exist. They exist to provide service reliability, right? They don't exist to cut uh, emissions. So, so how could you then uh, reconcile these different priorities, right, in, in, in a unified framework that allows you to think, to let everyone be aware that, hey, there's a higher goal there that... Uh, you know, by understanding how each of, you know, true actor network, so they, uh, they have, you know, they have interdependencies in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the way they deliver, but also there's some uh, interdependency governed by the, you know, if you follow water cycle, then you will find out how this food, energy, water nexus intersects, right? So, Water used for food, water used for for um, uh, cooling for energy uh, power plants. So they're competing uh, for the same resources, and there's households who use these resources at home. So it's it's quite you know uh, uh, a lot of things, moving parts going on that you have to to be able to uh, you know unify and 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 come up with some sort of uh, understanding of how this as a whole works together. You've, you've both talked about the the interconnections between what we might call policy areas, food, water, you've introduced health. But you also mentioned cities. Um, so, Claudia, you know, you talked a fair bit at, about the European level and the, and the global level. How would your approach to systems of systems align with thinking about cities, which, as we all know, are increasingly important as engines of economic growth, but also as consumers of resources and and so on. So what, if you were trying to apply a systems of systems approach, would a, would a city be a good site to do that in? Yes. So city is a very good example of, uh, you know, a domain for system of system. Uh, but then you cannot just take cities. It has to, you know, you start with, what is it about the cities that you want to, you know, uh, know more about or, you know, find some so- the solution for, right? So uh, what I did, for example, looking at, you know, in, in some part of the United States, you have cities that are declining economically. Uh, you know, you know in, in, in the Midwest, it's to be, uh, ma- you know, hub for manufacturing industries. So the, now that some cities are interested to bring back the economy, so... The question is right. So those are the main issues. So how how do you see cities as as a as a system of system? So one can start looking at at a very high micro level, the interconnection between job provisions. You know uh, why people what makes city attractive, uh, the education aspect because people want to move city because they want to have a, a, you know, an environment for their kids. Right, and then another key element is bringing back, uh, you know, businesses and 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 and, and uh, you know companies. So so then you have to ask what are you know the motivation for for companies to move in, right? They have their own uh, you know list of 
demand that they want to have in the city. You know, they want good access to uh, transportation. So mostly this is a, a, a logistic companies. Um, and, and then you go, so that's the level of you, you're looking at companies. And then you go into the, uh, the people who will work with these companies. And they have their own different types of priorities. They think about more of their children, their, the future of, you know, their retirement, etc. And they want a nice place to live, right? So you see now this two doesn't actually, uh, I mean, they're different. But And then at the individual level, you can, I mean, we can go down into that level. So where you actually model the psychology of people in terms of their motivation, the stress level, how it would affect their, you know, performance. And then, of course, as I said, at the highest level, you have government who can set this uh, macroeconomic policy. So how to bring all this bottom-up, top-down together so that the city can be revived? I think that's... Mm, that's that's a, an example. Yeah, that's a great, absolutely great example, and one that's um, incredibly uh, topical in in Australia, where we have um, cities, some cities that are growing at a, a remarkable pace, um, but is also a, a you know a much broader issue for all of us as urbanisation becomes the theme that we that we have to deal with. You've both mentioned in different ways instrumentation and tools, um, and I just wanted to to take you to the point of. If you're a young researcher and you're really engaged by what you're hearing on this podcast, you know, this is big issues, big questions, you know, the chance to really influence policy. What, what does it mean for, for younger researchers, Claudia, coming into the, to this field? What, what advice would you give them about um, how to become uh, the kind of researcher who can do the sort of work that, that you do that's interdisciplinary, that, that's very much engaged with, with policymakers? Uh, I have to say that, uh, first of all, I tell them that they should be more problem-driven, not by the incentive that's often provided by the current scientific uh, structure, like being more disciplinary-focused and looking mainly at, at many publications. So I did that. I, was, I think much of my work was mainly motivated by what I experienced really as problems. And that's where I probably also developed these kind of systemic approaches. That's one thing, though, to on one hand be realistic because you have to build up your career because that's it. But at the same time, also really I th- um, try to collaborate from the beginning on a fascinating real-world problem and uh, collaborate with, uh, uh, with uh, people as stakeholders, policymakers, and also do more action research. And I think that definitely the development of uh, tools, approaches that support these people to capture complexity, uh, we often have now, and that's generally, I think, the biggest uh, sign of uh, of success that you're approached by people, water boards and others who come to you and uh, ask for a collaboration so that at least shows normally we ask them and they can't we help you. Not like a business where they make a pharmaceutical company normally, they know where to go to research. We often have to rather sell it, quotation mark. So that's also a sign that there is a need out there. To really, I think, capture complexity and also develop new instruments for collaboration, cooperation. And I think that uh, young researchers should be really bold enough to uh, respond to what they perceive as major needs, also from really the current problems that are out there. And I think we need more of these kind of systemic thinkers that are able to really still have a certain depth in terms of the analytical depth that is required to really also develop solid science, but also develop capable to... Uh, 
cross fields, in particular in the social sciences. Uh, governance is often also fragmented in the social sciences. You need really a cross, for example, from political science studies. We, uh, you also need to perhaps have a, a, an understanding of how organizations perform to really work also across these disciplines. I think there is still much space to develop fascinating new science and at the same time to develop very meaningful tools to address real-world problems. And I think I'm both... I love science. I'm very much challenged by the riddle of solving scientific problems. And at the same time, I think it's very satisfactory to also see that you can really support real-world problem solving with the work that you do. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I mean, that, and the passion for what you do is, is evident in um, how, you, how you talk about it. Tato, you're, you're an engineer. Am I got that yes, right? Yes, I am. And, and this seems to be the, the coming field, if you like, that we're, you know, we're all now thinking much more about engineering, particularly in the context of, you know, computing capacity and so on. How, what advice would you give young engineers who, who may be thinking that their, you know, their, their worldview is about, you know, building bridges or roads or whatever yeah. it is? How do you get from being that kind of engineer to being the kind of research engineer that, that you are, who talks about these extraordinary issues in a, in a way that's accessible for policymakers? Well, first of all, I think, uh, you know, I, I admire engineers because they're the one who enable us to enjoy all this, you know, uh, internet and infrastructure. But I, at one point, I realized that, you know, it's simply making things work won't make it actually, I mean, if, if you make a machine that can run, it not necessarily make it works in society, right? So uh, that realization, yeah, leads me to thinking, you know, sometimes we have the technology, but it, it's about how this in technology integrated, you know, into into a broader uh, society, the, the the business model of it, and 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 the main thing you have to to keep in mind is is your objective is not, you know, you know, to mer only on that technology aspect. You want you have to think at a larger uh, system way that says. I want to have an efficient transportation system instead of making, you know, just a small, uh, you know, uh, an electric car. So when, but again, I need to be careful because I, I admire people who design and manufacture uh, electric car, but they have to think that their car will be become part of an elements within this larger transportation system, right? So, so I think. Um, um, you know, having a mindset as an engineer and then working with social scientists uh, broadened my perspective, and and then again uh, put your your role or the role of technology into perspective. So so I think uh, uh, again I would encourage engineers who love doing things uh, to keep doing what they love doing. But then having this, you know, a, a, a open mind about, you know, uh, the the social societal environmental aspect of what they're doing. Mm. Because just because you can do something well doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. really, yeah. That's and and Debbie, just just to, to to sort of bring this right back to um, where where you started. Um, you're a professor of public sector management strategy. Uh, which is quite a title. Um, what would you say is has come up for you in terms of 
what it is that policymakers might need to develop in terms of their own capabilities to be able to take advantage of, you know, the contributions that that, that people like Claudia and, and Dartu can can make. Because policymakers are very clear about what their problems are, which is, you know, great for, for Claudia. But they're not so good at, at, at figuring out how to make best use of, of, of research. What was really fascinating for me about the last few days that when we've all had a chance to talk to each other is we quite specifically brought together a room of people that they were completely different. We had system engineers, we had environmentalists, we had public management people, we had public policy people, we had um, a, a whole range of, of different skills in the room. And when we first started, the I remember we had a dinner on the very first night and everybody said to me, what do we have in common? And I was going, I don't know, but I'm hoping it's going to be okay. But by the end, it became clear that there were some really common themes of things we need to think about. One of them was system of systems. How do we map all the different complex parts, but not necessarily in just a clear map? A clear map of what we think it looks like is not necessarily helpful. And yesterday, I had a great conversation. We were talking about a particular um, initiative that's been suggested by the government. And we were talking about what would you actually look for? And we ended up realizing that the thing that nobody has looked for is actually what's working. What kept coming up was we had, and it's been mentioned by Claudio and Datu, is we've got to have a problem or maybe under, more clearly an idea of purpose. Why is it we want this to be? What will it look like if it's working is the question I always ask. And I know it will move, but it gives you something to look at. And we realized that the other thing is then, particularly for policymakers, there's so much written about change management. What you're trying to do is change a system. That means you need to understand where the leverage points are and when it's going to be possible to do them. So one of the things that came up a lot was about time mm. and about how fast things are moving, but also how slowly things are moving. So we might not be able to fix the 20-year problem this year, but we can work out what year one needs to look like so that we can think about 20 years. And even in a political cycle, that gives you something to be starting to move things with. But then also, if you actually want to move things, you've got to recognize what's working and build on that. And so we ended up talking about mapping a system of what's working, what are your biggest risks if you try and change it because it's going to get everybody offside, what are the things that actually we've tried to change and we've not managed to change. So we might think we understand where the leverage point is, but clearly we don't. Mm. And if we keep pushing at the same leverage point, I mean, it's that classic thing, isn't it? If you keep trying to do the same thing, why would you think it would be different next time? Mm. So if the leverage point has not worked, then you need a different one. So I think for policymakers, it's about recognizing maybe not everything about complex systems, but what does a leverage point really mean? And then the issue of emergence. What is emergent, as in because you make changes, something else appears? We talked right at the beginning about control. Mm. We try to control things which are emergent. You can't. You can control the leverage points, maybe. You can make decisions around certain things, and then something will happen, and it will inevitably not be what you thought it was going to be. Once you are comfortable with that, and that's again a skill, recognizing that it is not going to be what you thought, but that that's okay, it's a movement. And then you can say, right, 
now that we've got things moving, where do we go next? So that with skill is about recognising different parts of systems that we maybe haven't thought about before, recognising the limitations of control and time. And one that came up that was quite surprising was actually being able to use mandate and politics more, more cleverly. We assume, actually, that public servants can do that. And it became clear that it's not necessarily a learned skill, that it's a capability that people need to develop. Now, I know that you've done a lot of work with one of my colleagues, Helen Dickinson, about the future of work and the future of public servants. And I think that for me, the conversations we had were very pertinent to that. There will need to be completely different skills. And looking at systems analysis and complex systems might help us recognise some of those, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that... <clears throat> brings up this issue that of, of reform and policy reform. And, and in Australia, um, we are about to embark on uh, yet another review of the public service. So that's what we were um, discussing. And um, that will, this, this discussion, I think, which has emphasised both the critical importance of, of governance, but of governance that is collaborative, governance that is uh, evidence-driven, governance that is politically astute, um, uh, as well as as policy capable, um, I think that presents us with a uh, a great challenge, but also a great opportunity, given what we know, um, and also given the extraordinary opportunities that there are led by people like Claudia and Darty to really um, develop new tools and to think um, in rather different ways um, about, as you say, what what leverage points might be. So. Thank you all for a a terrific conversation and um, uh, let's hope that uh, we can uh, pursue this um, in a way that that informs both um, our own uh, research activities but also um, is genuinely useful to policymakers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Helen Sullivan, Director of Crawford School of Public Policy in the interview chair there. Her guests were Claudia Paul-Vostel, Datu Buyong Agustinata and Deborah Blackman. And I'd like to say another huge thanks to the University of New South Wales in Canberra for making the podcast possible. So what did you think of the discussion today? Let us know your thoughts and we'll do our best to discuss them on upcoming podcasts. You can send them in to podcast at policyforum.net. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes, hopefully a good one. It's a small gesture, but something that can go a long way in helping us get the word out about the podcast. I'm going to be back on Friday with that podcast looking at the creation of Australia's space agency. But keep your ear out for that podcast, which will be coming early next week from Sean talking about the US-China trade war. That's all for today, but I'll be back next week with more. Cheerio for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.